all you have. You're now tuned in to the caucus rays. So just sit back and ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darth Vader has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. What's happening, Far Far Away family? This is your host, Kyle, and you are now tuned in to Star Wars Audio Archives, the only intergalactic audio show of its kind. This week's episode is going to take a deep dive into the story, and I'm honored to be your guy. Because last week, we set the stage for today's journey, and I am eager to continue. This story is full of lessons and insight, and I believe that by exploring it together, we can gain a deeper understanding of ourselves and the old republic. So I invite you to join me on this serious and thought-provoking journey. Let's take a step back from everyday lives and immerse ourselves into a galaxy far, far away. Are you ready? Let's go. Throughout its history, the rocky desert world of Geonosis had suffered its share of catastrophes and mass extinctions, including the rogue comet strike on its largest moon that had very nearly wiped out the planet's entire population. Taking into account the resulting debris field, the flash floods, and the random solar radiation storms, it wasn't difficult to see why the ancient Geonosians, what remained of them, had moved underground. Not much had changed since then. Standing here amid the caverns and rock spires of whatever remained, Rojo Trace realized that the Republic officer in front of him had finished talking, or had at least paused for breath. The officer's name was Lieutenant Norch. And despite the fact that he was staring Trace directly in the eye and almost shouting to be heard above the wind, he still managed to sound both officious and insincere in his delivery. In other words, a perfect product of the bureaucracy to which he'd sworn allegiance. Furthermore, Norch continued, On behalf of the Republic's military and security divisions, we appreciate the order's timely response. The lieutenant gestured at the huge polyskin tent spread out in front of them, half a kilometer of rippling silver micropore, flapping and popping in the wind like the sail of a ship going nowhere. Given the nature of our discovery here, I'm sure you understand the urgency of our request. Trace nodded, wincing a little at the grit that blew into his face. He was a dark-haired man of unremarkable build and complexion, tall and steady and vaguely handsome in a way that didn't draw attention to the unshaven jawline, the green eyes, and the faintly smiling lips. Yet for every moment that he stood motionless outside the tent, perhaps listening, perhaps not, a sense of intensity seemed to gather around him, a sense of acute psychological awareness as its own rarefied state. We got the initial report of it last night, Nort said, raising his voice even louder over the baked dry wind. Independent long-range hauler on its way through the outer rim, picked up on an unfamiliar heat signature. They thought it was a distress signal, but when they landed, they saw this. And with a gesture no doubt intended to be dramatic, he turned to the tent and flung back the flap, allowing Trace inside. Trace ducked under the polyskin, glad to be out of the wind, and stopped looking down. The crater was still smoking, but he could see the wreckage piled up inside, perhaps 100 meters down, where it had punched a hole and permanently altered the landscape. Peering down into it, he was aware of the lieutenant watching him intently with a sense of barely reserved judgment until he was no longer able to contain himself. 
Well, Norch asked, what do you make of it? It's a Sith warship, obviously. The five-engine pods, the boxy design. The lieutenant shook his head. With all due respect, you mistake my meaning. We're aware that it's a Sith warship. We saw our share of them in the sacking of Coruscant. And then, puffing inside his uniform, the question is what caused it to crash here on Geonosis, and whether its arrival here ought to be considered an act of deliberate aggression. Why would you assume that? Trace asked. Nort narrowed his eyes as if reassessing the Jedi Knight's trustworthiness. The Republic has been evaluating this planet as a possible defense stronghold in the Arcana sector. That's strictly confidential, of course. And? And when I contacted the Jedi Council, they informed me that you were in possession of certain telemetric abilities that might clarify our enemy's underlying intent. That's true. Well, in any case, now Norch was giving him the full scowl. Out of impatience or the simple exertion of shouting out over the flapping tent, Trace couldn't be sure. At last, the lieutenant cleared his throat and found some speck out on the horizon to stare at. It was my personal understanding that upon arriving here, you would use your particular... Uh, abilities to assist us in our investigation. And it was my understanding, Trace said, that I would be given complete authority here to perform my investigation without any outside interference. He was still looking down into the great smoking hole at the warship and the colossal planetary bullet wound that its impact had created. It was even deeper than he'd initially suspected, and he could already hear the subtle lethal whisper of escaping pressure. What exactly do you want from me? Trace looked up at him. Get your men and clear out. From the tent. From the planet. One eyebrow arched up, a trick the lieutenant had been saving until now. I beg your pardon? It's not safe. We've already reinforced the ground around the site for a kilometer in every direction. I'm not talking about the ground. Trace allowed his voice to become slightly sharper. Do you hear that hissing sound? The warship struck a subterranean gas deposit, a big one by the sound of it. And the underground gases here on Geonosis are notoriously unstable. If it sublimates while your men are around, you won't have men anymore. Listen here. I'm in charge and... Then you'd do well to listen to what this man says. A new voice cut in. Trace turned to see a female Republic officer, perhaps in her early thirties, dark-haired and attractive, smiling at him. From Norch's salute, she clearly outranked him, but she didn't even acknowledge the response. Rojo Trace? I'm Captain Tekla Ansgar. Welcome. Her pale blue eyes glimmered at him, sharp and confident. It's a pleasure to meet you. I certainly hope you won't judge your experience here on the basis of one unpleasant conversation. Frankly, Trace said, my own experience here couldn't matter less. I'm here to do a job. Oh, I'm sure there's more to it than that. She stepped toward him, casually brushing his arm with her own. I have to confess, I've always admired the Jedi Order, but I've never had the opportunity to get to know a Jedi Knight personally. I'm afraid that's not going to happen today, Trace said. She frowned a little, 
But before she could continue, Trace moved past her, turned, and jumped straight into the crater. The plunge took the better part of 30 seconds, but to Trace it seemed both instantaneous and, in an unreal way, much longer. Shearing downward through the chasm, he summoned the force, generating a cushion of resistance beneath him until he felt his free fall slackening, the crater walls slowing down, individual molecules meshing to buffet his descent. Now, with a little bit of concentration, he could see every crack and divot in the rock as it passed. By the time he noticed the rest of the warship lodged at the bottom of the pit, he'd decreased his rate of descent to the point where he could reach out and catch hold of the broken fuselage. Cold durasteel slapped his hands. Swinging his legs around, Trace dropped through a ragged gash in the hull, boots thumping off a narrow band of twisted metal that had once been part of a catwalk. He took a breath and looked around. Even from here, the warship was a predictably ugly thing, inelegant and utilitarian, the work of a culture that saw nothing of beauty in the galaxy. The impact of the crash had actually improved its aesthetics, giving it some makeshift degree of originality. Standing here, he could feel the hulking weight of the craft tipping unsteadily around him, the wreckage still settling, rocking into place. Sharp edges rasped and scraped against the deep sedimentary layers, carving random glyphs into the soft sandstone. Beneath it all, omnipresent and lethal, was the stealthy whoosh of escaping gas. He didn't have much time. Edging his way deeper into the vessel, bulkheads shifting even as he passed through, Trace paused expanding his senses to draw in any indication of any remaining life aboard. There was nothing. Up above in the tent, the military officer had told him that the initial bioscan had come back negative, though he feared that a handful of Sith survivors might somehow be jamming the reading, preparing an ambush. Trace could have told him already that was not going to happen. But he'd come this far, and simple curiosity drew him onward. Dropping farther, taking his time, he clambered through the main flight deck and groped in the dark until his fingers brushed against something smooth, damp, and still faintly warm. There was a soft, organic pulpiness to it. Without needing to look, he knew he'd come across the first corpse. Slowly his eyes began to adjust. The remains of the Sith flight crew lay smashed and bleeding, burned, skin bubbling over exposed bone and melted into the fabric of their uniforms. Fire and impact had fused several of the bodies into a single twisted mass of faces and broken limbs embedded into the seats where they died. He could smell the gas now, its sulfuric rottenate fumes trickling into his lungs and new time was short. He closed his eyes again, but didn't remove his hand from the mass of dripping flesh and bone. Proximity was important. Physical contact was even better. Beneath the inner geometry of his own thoughts, he began to hear the curses of the crew as the ship's navigational system failed, felt their dawning horror as they realized the engine pods were going to bury them deep below the planet's crust. 
In the end, the impending inevitability of death had reduced them to something as brainless and scurrying as Mustafar lava fleas. Their faith in the dark side, their sworn oath to the Sith Lords with their incantations and ancient sigils, stripped away in a final spasm of animal panic. And then, silence. Always silence. Trace exhaled, reminded now of other terms he'd heard used to describe the Republic's role in crash sites like this. The officers might call them investigators, but the enlisted men on the ground had other names. Names like corpse counters and dirt tourists. The nicknames meant little to him. That was the job. Everything else was a distraction, including female officers who wanted to get to know him personally. He was aware of his reputation for being cold and impersonal. It didn't bother him in the least. He withdrew his hand, preparing his ascent to the surface, and sucked in a quick breath between his teeth. The bright lancet of sudden overwhelming fear that he just experienced had nothing to do with the warship or the remains of its crew. Something else was happening, somewhere far distant, something far worse. He saw his sister's face. There could be no doubt about it. It was Zoe, and she was screaming in a frenzy of pain and helplessness. And although Trace couldn't see her attacker clearly, he realized from the erratic sunbursts of her thoughts that she had no defense against the thing that loomed above her, dragging her out of the Jedi Agricultural Corps facility toward... What? He stopped, frozen, his current locale utterly forgotten, blindsided by a storm of disjointed images. The shaft of a spear dripping with blood, a flash of green, a whiff of something rancid and feral. His nostrils burned with the stench of a place that had been bottled up too long, a place of death and solitude and agonized last breaths. He could feel her confusion and apprehension pumping through his own circulatory system, as if they shared the same heart. For a moment, he could feel the presence of her abductor. Listen to me, Trace told him. I don't know who you are, but I am in possession of a very special set of skills. If you bring my sister back right now, unharmed, then I'll let you go. But if you don't, I promise you, I will track you down. I will find you. And I will make you pay. Of course, there was no response. From beneath him came a stuttering, squealing lurch, then a deafening crash as the fuselage of the crashed Sith warship swayed under his feet and abruptly gave way in a waterfall of sparks. There was a sudden and a plume of flame as a gas pocket blasted open from the wall. The explosion rocked the crater to its depths. Snapping around, Trace felt huge slabs of scorched rock scaling loose, tumbling down toward him. On reflex, he threw up a solid bubble of air, pressing it outward to ensure enough breathable oxygen. Too little, and he'd suffocate inside here. A bug in a jar. The bubble did its job. Debris hammered down on top of it, shale bouncing and skittering across the dome. Trace scarcely noticed. He cast his thoughts back toward Zoe, back to the place in himself where he'd seen and felt the final compulsive timpani of her distress, straining for any hint of where she might be, 
where her captor was taking her. But there was nothing there now. Only dead air, as deep and final as that which followed the crash of the warship where he now stood. And awful silence. Rising upward with the bubble, Trace made for the surface of the crater, the light from above growing brighter, broadening to illuminate the deep frown etched onto his face. Zoe awoke, staring into the empty sockets of a skull. Not human. It was a misshapen thing, one eye hole appreciably larger than the other, and a third gaping just above it, its gap-toothed grin seeming to welcome her into some murderous new realm where proportions were a joke and nothing made sense. There was a dusky blue sapphire, probably fake, embedded in the thing's one remaining incisor. The skull's current owner had strung several lengths of thick cable through its facial sinuses so that it dangled like a grotesque bead on a string. And when Zoe sat up and tried to move away from it, the fullness of the chamber where she'd awakened came into view. She was inside a kind of trophy room. The cable ran from one side of the room to the other. Rows of similar skulls hung on either end. Dozens of them, grouped together in clusters, while others were set apart in twos and threes to create a kind of ghastly abacus. Beneath it, an irregular array of vats and stained crucibles bubbled steadily over heating elements. In them, Zoe saw more bones and shanks of raw knotted limbs protruding upward, some sheathed in yellow fat and sinew while others seemed to have boiled down to the marrow. Moss and mildew covered the ceiling, years of lichen and mold, colonies of life competing for airborne fat molecules coming off the pots. The smell of scalded viscera hung permanently in the air. Swallowing, trying not to gag, Zoe squirmed again and felt something slick and oily brush against the backs of her arms. Turning around, she saw that the entire wall behind her was lined with skins and hides, each one crawling with layers of tiny, blind beetles industriously gnawing away. She watched, helpless, as they burrowed in and out of the hanging flank, hauling off chunks of grayish flesh. Mosky scarabs, a voice behind her said. Zoe snapped back around and saw the whippet standing in the doorway. His gaze was intense, corrosive, as if he could already see through her skin to the skeleton she would inevitably leave behind, bones he might boil out of her if she weren't worth waiting for the natural decay process to do it first. Zoe moved her head slightly and winced at the pain in the base of her neck. She remembered those last few moments at the Marfa facility. The butt end of the whippet spear, a glassy rocket of agony. The blurry slither of the corridor as it warped past the lens of her ever-dimming consciousness. And just before she'd blacked out, the hatchway. Zoe looked past the whippet, regarding her surroundings through this new, unwelcome perspective. 
the whine of turbines under the floorboards, the persistent shiver of the bulkhead. Though the room was without any sort of viewport, offering no sight of their greater surroundings, she realized they had to be in flight. Is this your ship? The whippet nodded once. The Mirocow. Where are we going? This time, he didn't answer, lumbering instead over to the nearest of the pots. She watched as he lifted the lid and dipped in with an oxidized pair of tongs, hoisting a grubby clump of something that she realized was a type of shank. Bits of gristle and musculature, part of a leg, dangled from its lower edges. With an unimpressed grunt... The whip had dropped the part back into the pot and slapped the lid back down, then turned to walk out again. Wait, she said hoarsely. The bounty hunter didn't stop. The hatch slid shut. A moment after he left, Zoe found the orchid. It was still inside the half-crushed specimen flask, strapped almost haphazardly between a cargo drop panel and a swing bin above the vats of limbs and skulls. Her captor had used the same greasy cable he'd strung through the skulls to tie the containment vessel into place. From where she stood below it, she saw that the orchid had flourished even while she'd lain here unconscious. Simple physical proximity seemed enough to keep it alive, despite the fact that for a good bit of time she'd been out cold. Zoe looked at it. Hello? Nothing. It's me. Can you hear me? The initial process of communication was never easy. At first it had felt almost unnatural. Yet with practice, through countless mornings spent sitting alone with the orchid, she'd soon reached a level of mastery that eased the transitory awkwardness into a smoother and more organic leap. Are you there? Within its glass vessel... The plant finally twitched, brightening slightly in recognition of her presence. Zoe watched its dust-colored stem inclining toward her like a beckoning finger. At the same time, she felt its life essence stirring within her, filling an almost physical void directly behind her breastbone and between her lungs, a place she thought of almost colloquially as her soul. At the same time, she heard the first coarse whispers of its voice, gender-neutral, incoherent at first, and then becoming clearer, like a foreigner adapting to the nuances of an entirely new language. Zoe? What happened? Are we well? Zoe gave a rueful smile, felt the lump on the back of her head. I wouldn't exactly say that. The orchid was silent a moment. Then, I sense that things have changed. You can say that again, she murmured aloud. Repeat? We've been abducted, Zoe told it. Taken. Another silence. Then, yes, that is true. By this creature, Talca. Her eyes darted back up to it. That's his name? The Whippet? Yes, he's a... Hunting for the correct phrase. What is it, this word? One who takes people for money? A bounty hunter, Zoe said, and felt the orchid nodding in agreement. Yes, solitary, 
a bloodthirsty species, and aggressive. Zoe waited, processing the comment. The orchid had a gift for understatement, and she couldn't help but wonder about the criteria for this assessment. And a flower collector to boot, she told it. If the orchid had an opinion on this, it didn't voice it. What does he want? she asked. The orchid stayed silent. Staring at it, Zoe began to realize how her fully wakened presence had already affected the trophy room's biosphere. The naturally occurring moss on the ship's ceiling had started spreading at a noticeably accelerated pace, sprawling to swallow up the exposed bolts and seams in the interior walls. There was some kind of switchplate just above her head with a sign written in another language, the Whippet's mother tongue, she assumed. But it was already so moss-covered that she couldn't make out the letters. Scraps of green rot within the skulls had begun extending their first initial tendrils up as well, reaching outward through eye sockets and trepanned holes. Simply by being here, she jump-started the growth of the Mirocall's incidental flora. Do you at least know where he's taking us? Again, no immediate reply from the orchid. Zoe wondered if she'd reached the outer limits of the flower's knowledge. Then she felt the spacecraft jerk hard to one side, the nearly subsonic whine of the turbine pitch-shifting into afterburner mode, and realized she was about to get the answer for herself. What's going on? Are we crashing? She asked. Going down, the orchid said. Where? Silence again. Then, the worst place in the galaxy. The impact knocked her sideways against the wall of skins, and Zora coiled, found her equilibrium, and brushed off the scuttling hard-shell beetles that clung to her skin before they could sink their hungry little mouth parts into her. The things fell to the deck, scuttled blindly for an instant and then vanished between the cracks, as if the Whippet's ship were just another corpse for their investigation. Below her feet, the engines had fallen silent. In the stillness, she sensed the Miracle resigning itself to gravity, redistributing the vicissitudes of torque through its thousand tiny joists and connectors with a deep and exhausted sigh. Zoe still couldn't tell if they'd crashed or if it had just been a rough landing. She waited, scarcely breathing as the thrusters cooled, ticking and ultimately falling silent. From outside, she could hear the wind. The sound brought with it a kind of alien desolation that seeped in from somewhere outside the Durasteel reinforced hull. She felt the skin on her back tightening with a shiver. It felt as if they'd landed in some windowless crawl space in the bottom of the galaxy. A place inexplicably devoid of entrances and exits. Her gaze flicked back to the orchid, hoping for an explanation, a means of understanding what she felt. Something's gone wrong out there, she thought. Can you feel it? Across the room, the vacuum-sealed gasp caught her by surprise. The whippet was standing in the open hatchway again clutching his spear in one hand and a bunched-up bundle of furs and hides in the other. He tossed the furs at her feet. Put those on. Zoe didn't budge. What are we doing here? 
get the plant. Are you going to answer me? He turned and stalked out again, this time leaving the hatch open behind him, an unspoken demand to follow. Was there some other component to his brusqueness besides just impatience? Was the bounty hunter as uneasy as she felt? Zoe looked down at the pile of furs and pelts. They had been stitched into crude mittens, boots, a hat, and what looked like a kind of cloak. Squatting, she pulled the boots over her feet and found that, despite their bulkiness, they fit well enough when she lashed them tight around her ankles. They were recent kills, she realized. She could still feel the residue of the lives that had worn them as skin. It was like strapping on restless layers of ghosts. Picking up the cloak, she slung it around her shoulders and reached up to the sealed transparent lab packet containing the orchid, slipping it free from the cable that pinned it down. The orchid seemed to shiver and flattened its petals against the wall of the chamber closest to her hand as if drawn to the warmth. It was murmuring to itself, not out loud, but in her mind, in one of a thousand languages that she didn't understand, an obscure tongue of hums and hisses. She stepped out into a long, narrow corridor lit by irregular panels of interior lights and followed it forward through another open hatch. Here the walkway narrowed even further, the ceiling lowering until she thought she'd somehow gone the wrong way. Hunching her shoulders to negotiate a turn, Zoe realized how truly cold it was. An abrupt blast of arctic air slashed across her face and forearms, and she turned, open mouth and startled, tasting the first iron-flecked coldness in the back of her throat. White flakes swirled up the landing ramp, and in the sickish pale green glow of the landing lights, she got her first look at where they'd settled. They weren't sitting on any kind of pad. If it was out there, they'd missed it completely. The landscape outside the ship presented little more than a broad, snow-seething step of white on white. The wind brought a thin film of tears to her eyes, and so wiped them clear. In the distance, across the void, she could just make out the jagged peaks cutting upward like a black spinal column. There was something both erratic and oddly deliberate in the outline of those mountains. An instant later, she realized what it was. They weren't mountains at all. She tried to swallow and felt no moisture in her throat. The freezing, dry air had sucked it away, eliminated it entirely. In her arms, tucked against her, the orchid had started to make the same repetitive clicking sound over and over again, as if it were stuck on a thought, a compulsive, stammering noise that she didn't like at all. The tip of a spear touched the back of her neck, just above the rough hem of the collar. Move, Tolka's voice said from behind her. Zoe's feet wouldn't budge. They seemed to have been riveted in place. Wait, she said, not turning around. Those black shapes out there in the distance, they're... I know what they are. Which planet is this? She asked thinly. Zyhast? The spear tip slipped a little against her skin, but it didn't hurt. She was too far lost in what lay in front of them to feel the pain. We shouldn't have come, she said. 
there's a toxicity level that I can't account for. It's move. Do you have a droid you could send out to sample the atmosphere just to make sure? The spear tip pushed harder, insisting. Hurting now. Zoe started down the landing ramp. Fresh kills or not, she was immediately grateful for the boots and skins. The heavy fur pelt piled around her shoulders and around her neck. The snow wasn't deep. In many places, its crust was firm enough that they actually walked on top of it. But the wind was surgical, a precision instrument with needles for teeth. And it found even the tiniest exposed places on her skin attacking them. In minutes, her face was a numb mask her cheeks heavy and lifeless. She fixed her stare on the black, crooked spine of peaks on the horizon. They were closer now, and any initial resemblance to mountains had long since vanished. The ruins and escarpments had a crudely mechanized appearance, and the resulting sprawl looked as if the massive skeleton of some ancient machine, city-sized, planet-sized, had been half-buried here abandoned while it was still alive enough to dig itself out. In the midst of it, like some pivot upon which it all turned, a great black tower. It rose up, crookedly, a sloping monolithic pile constructed of sleek black rock, the grave marker of some long-dead deity. From even here, its height dwarfed the half-ruined complex below. A good pilot could have parked a long-range freighter atop its flat roof. Red lights swarmed and shimmered inside its upper levels, their erratic patterns flooding the cloud of snowfall in a deep arterial glow. It was like watching a digitized readout of a brain going insane and dying. The crunch of Tolka's footsteps faltered and slowed to a halt, and so lowered her gaze to what lay immediately before them. Twenty meters ahead, the ground dipped and a kind of crude gateway rose up, webbed with clots of ice. She was aware of a silence here, the wind shearing abruptly away, leaving them in a pocket of utter quiet. Zoe took a breath and held it, then finally spoke aloud the words that had been haunting her since she'd first emerged from the bounty hunter's ship. This is a Sith Academy. The whippet marched on, the unspoken silence of his confirmation hitting her even harder than she had anticipated. What planet is this? He ignored her. Why are we here? He skulked past her to the gate. Despite his size and imposing stature, there was a hesitation to his approach, as if he didn't know quite what to expect beyond this point. It's the orchid, isn't it? Tulka turned back to her, spear in hand. She saw knots of ice dangling from his hair. His eyes were lost in shadow. You were right to be afraid, she said. Whatever's inside there is worse than you can possibly imagine. I'm only trying to warn you, she went on. You know, I'm a Jedi. I can feel... Something happened then, some truncation of motion, as if time itself had been tricked cheated out of its rightful due. Before she knew it, an icicle of pain, a single radial spike, jagged upward into the underside of her chin, and when Zoe opened her eyes, 
she saw Tolka standing directly in front of her, the sharp part of the spear thrust upward into her flesh, biting in, drawing blood. He had moved faster than she'd ever imagined, faster even than her enhanced powers of perception could quite register. Zoe pulled back, freeing herself. What do the Sith want with the Murakami orchid? Tolka blinked at her once, slowly, the blink of a creature that preferred to spend its time alone. You can tell me now, she said, or you can kill me. But I'm letting you know, I'm not going another step without knowing what's waiting for me in there. She thought about everything she'd heard of the academies. Hives of darkness so black and toxic that they blazed with their own special kind of evil, unimaginable to those who'd never witnessed it firsthand. Even those darkest of places seemed clean compared with the rancid feeling of contamination wafting out from in front of those peculiar, half-ravaged structures, their slabs and the black tower overhead. But you already know the orchid can't live without me. For a long time, Talca didn't answer. So long, in fact, that Zoe wondered if he planned on ignoring her entirely. A moment later, though, he spoke. Have you heard of Darth Scabros? Zoe felt something clenching deep in her chest. It was familiar, this tightness, like an emotional echo of some long-forgotten childhood fear. She remembered feeling it the moment the ship landed. And now it had a name. Darth Scabros. She felt her gaze sucked inexorably back toward the tower. He wants to plant, Tulka said. I'm bringing it to him. That's the job I was hired to do. I see. No, Tulka said. You don't. He shook his head. But you will. Zoe tried to speak, but all that came out was a croak. Tulka stared at her from the other end of the spear, the inarticulate ultimatum communicating more than words ever could. A moment later, she stepped through the gateway. Rojo Trace, welcome to Marfa. I'm Niles Emmert. We were told you were coming. The silver-haired agricultural lab attendant stood with his hand extended. Trace paused just long enough to give it a perfunctory squeeze, his eyes already scanning the area, taking in everything at once as they walked across the landing bay. The ship he'd commandeered was a generic mid-sized star skiff, big enough for a crew of eight, small enough to escape scrutiny, retrofitted with ion engines and a Class I hyperdrive for long-range travel. He traveled alone. I want to see the research level. Of course, Emmert nodded. The incubation chamber is on B-7. That's where your sister took care of the orchid. The lift was waiting. Ten minutes later, Emmert guided him between the rows of plants and vegetation, heading for the chamber's airlock. The panel hung open and Trace looked in at the broken electronics equipment inside, squatting down to place both hands directly on the dirty, scratched surface of the chamber floor. As far as we can tell, Emmert said, Hestizo was... Trace cut him off with a gesture, not bothering to glance up. A flurry of activity surged through him. He heard Zoe's voice and saw the face of her attacker. It was a whippet, he realized. The biggest one he'd ever seen. Yanking her and the orchid out of the chamber. Trace felt his sister's surprise, blurring into pain, 
as the blunt end of the whippet spear slammed her in the head. He felt the blinding impact as she jerked back, slumping unconscious to the floor, the flower tumbling from her grasp. The whippet bent down, hoisting her over his shoulder and grabbing the orchid at the same time before he turned and lumbered away. He came for the flower, Trey said. Emmert nodded. The uh, Murakami orchid is renowned for its force abilities. It possesses power, but it requires a keeper, someone with an equally high midi-chlorian count, to keep it fully alive. Was there anyone else in this part of the facility at the time? Just Walbinus, the lab director. Is he still unconscious, Emmert replied, in the Bacta tank? Our physicians estimate he'll be awake in a day or so. We can't wait that long, Trace said. What about surveillance in the loading and landing facility? Our sensors recorded the arrival and departure of an unlicensed ship early this morning. Emmert glanced away, abashed. It must have come in under some kind of cloaking device and managed to evade our detection. But we went back to the morning's footage and found this. He reached into the pocket of his lab smock and pulled out a data pad, thumbing it awake. Trace looked at the screen. It showed a shot of the main hangar below, centering on an oblong vessel that looked as if it had been grafted together from scrap. Despite its ungainly shape, or perhaps because of it, the ship had a canting, rough-hewn meanness, a crude bulk that defied anyone to get too close for fear of whatever might have been waiting inside. There was a series of partially worn numbers and letters on the side of the hull. Can you enhance this image? Trace said. Emmert pressed another button, magnifying the picture, until Trace could read the name on the side. Miracle. We haven't been able to fully identify the call letters yet. That's because they've been scraped off just enough to make them illegible. It's an old smuggler's trick. Trace frowned a little. You said it got through using some kind of cloaking device? Emmert nodded. Yes, but... What's that? Trace pointed at the screen at a series of pale bluish-green discolorations along the Miracle's port side. The marks had an oddly phosphorescent glossiness, almost as if that portion of the ship's outer plating had been streaked with a layer of iridescent oil. Carbon scoring? No, the Jedi Knight shook his head. That's Thulean vapor residue. It's a galactic anomaly, a mixture of post-industrial airborne pollution and crystal fog. You only find it in about three places outside the mid-rim. Emmert gave him a blank look. Have my ship ready, Trey said. I'm leaving in five minutes. Within the hour, he'd confirmed his suspicion. The nearest Thulean cloud formations in existence cast a permanent shadow over Quen, a dreary post-industrial outpost along the outermost borders of Hut space. By day's end, Trace had landed there. The Quen space station was a polluted sprawl of docking bays, warehouses and repair facilities, cantinas and unlicensed gambling parlors. Without drawing undue attention, Trace walked through a dozen different establishments, talking to the pilots, fugitives, mechanics, and fringe dwellers that made up the station's population. 
He bought rounds of drinks, fighting his own impatience, and listened to long, seemingly pointless monologues from barflies who hadn't enjoyed such an attentive audience in years. In the end, it was a one-armed Bothan smuggler named Gree who told him what he needed to know. The former whereabouts of the Miracle's owner, a whippet bounty hunter who went by the name Talca. Haven't seen him around in a while, Gree said after Trace had bought him a series of drinks, including a local favorite called a Mind Eraser, and crossed his one remaining palm with a stack of credits. Word is that he picked up a pretty sweet gig. <laughs> Nobody knows what. Trace met the smuggler's gaze, holding it fast, feeling the force flow through him into the Bothan's mind, completing the task that the liquor had already begun. Did he say anything about a flower? A f Gris' face went smooth, all reluctance draining away from his voice so that the words came easily. Yeah, that's right. He was going after a flower. Tulka wasn't much of a talker, but we got liquored up one night and he started telling me about it. Who hired him? A Sith Lord named Darth Scabrus. Trace felt a sudden coldness pass through him. Located where? I don't know. A Sith Academy? Gree grimaced a little, struggling with the memory. I want to say... Odacer Faustin? He blinked. Hey, you think I could get another drink? But Trace was already gone. All right, space cadets. We just finished listening to part four of Red Harvest. And let me tell you, this story is out of this galaxy crazy. I was completely engrossed in the situation the whole time. The Star Wars universe is simply epic, and I can't even imagine what is going to happen next. All I know is I'm strapped in and ready for it. Well, hold on. We still got to get to the quote of this episode, and it comes to us from Ahsoka Tano. She said, Hope is the spark that ignites the flame of resilience, guiding us through the darkest shadows. Wow, that's a pretty insightful quote. Ahsoka offers us a profound insight into the power of hope and resilience. She metaphorically compares hope to a spark that has the ability to ignite a flame within us, which represents our resilience, the strength and determination to persevere through challenges. When we face difficult times or find ourselves in the midst of darkness, it's easy to become overwhelmed and to lose sight of our goals. However, Ahsoka reminds us that hope acts like a guiding force. It provides the necessary fuel to keep us moving forward, even when everything seems bleak and uncertain. Just as a spark can ignite a fire, hope has the potential to ignite our own inner resilience. It is the inner flicker of belief that there is a possibility for things to improve, for obstacles to be overcome. It gives us the strength to push through adversity, to endure, and to keep striving for a better outcome. Moreover, Ahsoka's mention of the dark shadows signifies the most challenging and trying moments we may encounter in life. These shadows represent the uncertainties, the fears, and the obstacles that seem overwhelming. However, she suggests that it is precisely in these darkest moments that hope shines brightest, acting as a beacon that leads us forward. By acknowledging the power of hope and embracing it, we can find the resilience to confront and conquer these challenges that stand in our way. It is through hope that we can discover the strength within ourselves to persevere, to keep moving forward, and to ultimately triumph over adversity. And that's something that I truly believe. And I think that that's all I have for today. I hope you've enjoyed part four of Red Harvest as much as I did. And I hope you will join me next time for more Star Wars adventures. Until then, may the force be with you. Mm -hmm.
Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quinn McDaniel and is distributed by Swaycast Network. Star Wars Red Harvest was read to you by Jeremy Owens. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I'm your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.